0: So, here we are staggering towards the last in this series, which is trying to explain what we do in the family courts, and this one is a broader topic, and it's effectively asking us to look honestly about what our way of working and what our lifestyle means when it comes to doing the frontline work that many legal aid lawyers do. And when I talk about legal aid lawyers, I'm talking about barristers, solicitors, I'm not simply talking about those that do child protection law. I'm talking about human rights, crime, immigration. Every aspect of law that brings you up against that hard edge of discovering quite how poorly one human being can treat another and how poorly and how uh, much difficulty that has uh, imposed on us to try to do the case we seek to do for them. So where shall we start? Well, this quote... The first thing you think when you see and read that is that that's an incredibly witty thing to do and to say. And there are two interpretations. The first is that lawyers are the irritants in the system, and therefore the system and society is all the better if we eliminate them. The other is, if you're a tyrant, the one thing you're going to want to do is to get rid of the lawyers because they are the marker that says you cannot behave in the way you're doing towards your citizens. So it's a, it's a two-edged sword. I, of course, endorse the latter interpretation, not the former. But what do we think, as a member of the public, of the bar generally? Up until now, when I've Googled barristers, I've come up with headlines, for example, such as fat cat lawyers, um, talking about how much money we earn and how much money we should earn. When I was prepping for this lecture, I put in the same text, and aside from an article coming up from the Express in 2014, uh, this was what came up. So we've got um, Save UK Justice, Defend Legal Aid, and I think significantly we've got two books written by members of our profession, which have galvanised a intelligent public and the press in understanding quite what it means to be a barrister working in legal aid in a system which is broken because it has been underfunded for so long that it is gone beyond creaking at the edges and it's crumbling. And that has had consequent strains on those of us that work within that same profession. So I thought it was an interesting dynamic in terms of understanding now where we are. And we'll find out the results of a vote taking place at the criminal bar very soon as to whether or not their system is in such crisis as is their um, rate of pay and worker pay that they are now proposing going out on strike. So other headlines that might try to introduce to you why I'm talking about this topic. Because when you are in a justice system where serving and former judges of seniority are prepared to put their voice in print by saying that the system is no longer functioning, then you need to take notice. And what I have here is just a selection of those former judges and serving judges who have said that the impact of the cuts on the justice system, whether it be crime or family, has gone beyond the point of tolerance. And interestingly, how that's been picked up in the thinking press by identifying what strains there are upon practitioners. So, in terms of this lecture, I'm going to talk about four things. The first is the emotional cost and content of the work we do. The stress of trying to do it in a system that's been underfunded for decades. Collateral damage, about the impact of those two factors. Secondary trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, burnout. What do we risk by working in this world? And then looking on a more positive side, what can we do as individuals to either help ourselves or help colleagues in crisis? And when individual action isn't enough, what ways are there in which our specialist agencies can step in to help us when we've reached the point of no return? So although the initial part of the lecture will potentially be quite difficult for you to listen to, it's intended to finish on a positive note because this is a situation we can call upon colleagues in our professions to help. And one of the reasons I'm giving this lecture is because unless we acknowledge plainly the impact of the work upon us, and unless we start to end the stigma of saying, I can't cope, and the impact that has on our working lives and our families, then we won't change anything. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm giving this public lecture today. So, the work we do. And before I go into any details, if there's anyone listening online, can I say this is not one of the Gresham lectures that you should be doing as a multitasker, giving kids food, looking after your adolescents, checking they're doing their homework. This is not a lecture that you should have any vulnerable adult or young person in the room when you are listening to it. And if any of you in the audience feel you need to leave at any point, then I won't take it in any way as an insult if you exit and leave. That's perfectly reasonable. There is no reason why you listening to this lecture should be traumatized by hearing about what we do. And there is no shame in you departing if it gets to a point when you can't do that. So that's a general health warning, and the reason it's given is for the contents of this next section. Think about what you do as a legal aid lawyer, and when you're thinking about that, I'd like to, you to reflect on these words that come from the solicitor active for John Venables in the Jamie Bulger murder. As he said here, the death mentally affects all of us lawyers, and of course, anyone listening to this tragic case, I had no counselling. I did think to myself, you're just going to have to get over this. The case ended in November 93, and I was immediately traumatized by the thought of that poor child cut to death by a passing train. I started having the reoccurring nightmare of being on a ghost train, it stopping, me getting out, pushing it. Falling out onto the rail in front of the train and being run over by it and then waking up in a cold sweat. I have that dream many, many times and that comes from an interview that Lawrence was giving just last year to a Radio 4 podcast. And before you think to yourself, what was he doing putting himself into that situation? You must remember that he as a solicitor received a call to go and assist a child who'd been detained at a police station. And he went because that's his job As a barrister, when we're given a case to do, we don't question and query whether the person we're asked to act for deserves or not to have representation. Because we operate under a system that everyone deserves to have legal representation when they are accused of something serious enough that means that they are in court. And we don't judge what they have done. That's the job for the jury or the judge, it's not ours, and therefore we attend and give representation. We don't turn the case away because the contents are vile or the client appears to us to be horrific. And so we don't have a choice, which is why we step into the world which most of you are privileged not to know anything about. This is the type of work we do. We deal with slavery. We deal with victims of torture. We deal with instances where children die. We deal with instances where children don't die but have been so brutalized you wonder how they haven't come to die We deal with children that have bites and burns, suffocation, broken bones, bleeding eyes, bleeding brains. We deal with victims of trafficking and of grooming. We deal with physical abuse. We deal with children who've been buggered and raped. We deal with the abuse of babies who've been raped from as young as four weeks old onwards. That is the world in which we operate. My world, as a child protection specialist, means that part of my normal working life is looking at images of a child, inert and dead on a pathological slab and seeing their transition from a recognizable child to a collection of blood and bones and sides. My daily life involves looking at images of torture My working life involves me exploring areas of brutality by one another and to one another, which most of us do not have to trespass upon. When I'm acting for someone accused of killing their child and the court is having to determine whether they have abused that child to the point of death or whether there's a benign cause that has contributed to the broken bones or the bleeds found internally, I take a client into conference And not simply hour by hour, but minute by minute, I require them to relive the moments until that child was taken into medical care. I do it because I have to, in order to identify whether there's an alternative reason for why that child has had to die. And if I don't get into the detail, then not only can I not represent to the client to the best of my ability, but the client won't understand what the scale of evidence is that they need to confront. But for that parent seeing me in conference, I am traumatizing them, am I not, by asking them to relive the point at which they last saw their child healthy to the point where they became critically unwell? And am I not also desensitizing them to what must be a horrific experience? And it's not simply the client I am traumatizing or desensitizing, I'm asking these questions, expecting answers. I've got a box of tissues there, but I'm not going to stop the conference. I become desensitized because I do these cases all the time. How often, I've asked myself, do I properly check that the junior I have in in the conference room has done this type of case before and is prepared for the type of questioning I'm going to ask? How often do I check that the solicitor accompanying the client more usually not the solicitor because the pressures on their legal aid practices are such that they can't afford the time to come to a client conference because that's a bit like punching a hole in their last vestige of profit that they can make in terms of attendances in their legal aid practice. Quite often they send a clerk along. What experience will that clerk possibly have of knowing what will be discussed in the course of that conference? And how often do I think about that when I explore this? How often, having gone through this exercise, do I check that the client when they leave me is gonna have someone to support them? How often do I check about the impact that what we've discussed has had on the solicitor with me? And the brutal answer is, not enough. And we do that because I think we are so programmed to think this is necessary that we become desensitized to the impact of our work upon the people we are meant to be there to represent and protect. If I think about the impact some of my experiences have had on me, they are ones that still scar me. I cannot wipe away the images that have blotted themselves on my retina. I cannot wipe away the sounds that I have heard. I cannot forget that when I was a junior barrister sent along to go and watch a video in a police station, no one told me what I was about to see. What I saw was an image of a four-year-old child being buggered. With the cameraman zooming in on his face as he screamed in agony, because that was where the pleasure of the viewer derived their purpose in being there. I had no preparation. I could not deal with what I was seeing. I left. I had a child of the same age. When I went back home, all I could see when my child was next to my husband was the size of their bodies compared to one another. That was not acceptable. In another case, acting for a 14-year-old, accused of sexually assaulting his younger siblings aged age 1 to 6, it took a long time to gain his trust to understand why that might be an allegation and, two, why he had engaged in at least 8 years of self-mutilation in his penis to the point that he'd shredded a large amount of it. It was only when he realised that in order to explain what he was accused of, he had to explain what had been done to him by his mother, his grandmother, his grandfather, his uncles, his aunts, by passing strangers. that he came to the point where he explained that the reason he self-mutilated is because his mother didn't like the the smell of blood and she found it messy to see the aftermath. It also expressed his self-hatred. After he had told us that, what did he do with the fact that to lawyers, the suits he had unburdened himself... Because he had no therapy, because in the course of proceedings, the one thing we do not do is give people therapy, because it might affect the quality of the evidence they then have to give. He had a social worker, but he was in proceedings. And so the social worker had a dual responsibility to him, and also to pass on information relevant to the protection of his siblings to others. So who did he have to talk to? And it transpires, the only people he had to talk to were me and my junior because we were the first people he had felt confident in enough to tell us of his experiences. I was lucky because my junior was a solicitor with former social work experience, a mature man, and he was able to support us both through the process of confidence and trust that we embarked upon. But when the case ended, our role ended. The boy lost us. He was accused of assorting, he was found responsible for assorting his siblings, and the network of support was lost. What do we do about those situations? So when I am talking to you about the type of work we do, please think about the type of pain that we trespass upon as we try to peel back the layers of defense, denial, rage, pain, protection, loyalty, because it's only by peeling back those layers that we try to explore what the true essence of the case is about. Because if we don't do it, the first time that's going to be done is when they're cross-examined in the witness box by people who aren't there to try to ask supportive questions as well as exploratory ones. What else do I do? Well, I did this. I did Hillsborough. This is the first time I've spoken about Hillsborough. And I won't be doing so again. Hillsborough required us to look at images of people dying before our very eyes. It did not get better by virtue of the fact it was 25 years ago. We didn't just have to look at them once, we had to look at them by second by second, by millisecond, by frame, because our responsibility was not only to identify a loved one from those sea of faces, but also to identify the point and the time and the moment at which they passed from unconscious to dead. So why do we do it? We do it because we are legal aid lawyers for a reason. We fundamentally believe that we do this job to try to make a difference to those people who are in need at a crisis point of their lives. We do it even though we could earn more money by doing private law, by private prosecutions. We do it because we seriously believe that as legal aid lawyers, we have a job to do, that if it's not done, risks miscarriages of justice. But we do it at cost. I've told you some of them, and I'll come on to others in a moment. We do it at cost in terms of income as well. You need to bear in mind that when we do this job, we are self-employed. That means if we don't work, we don't earn. We get no sick pay, we get no pension. What we earn has not only clerk's fees taken off of it, but all the other consequences. Only think about what we earn. And when you find out what the criminal bar have decided to do in the vote that they are taking place now, just look at some of those comments on the right and work out whether you think this is a reasonable wage for someone doing this type of work. So let's just take one, because the rest will be up there. Reading through 300 pages of medical notes for which I'm neither qualified nor paid to travel for two hours unpaid to apply to adjourn a complex sentence, £46.50. If you look to the right, you'll see that £46.50 is simply the gross price paid for that barrister's work. Off of that comes parking, £30, rent, tax... And you'll see at the right-hand example, it's, it's an equivalent. I'm not saying it's the same case. That actually means that the person doing the work is out of pocket by doing it. Look at the one at the top. Listed third on at 10.30 um, for a sentence. That means that the barrister would have read the papers, been there, prepared to make pleas in mitigation. They'd have met the client. They'd have supported the client. Gets to 3.20, judge doesn't have time, it's adjourned. The fee for, therefore, is £46.50, again... Train fare, 30 quid. Left home, 7.30, get back in at about 7.30. A 12-hour day plus preparation. Now, when you're thinking about the type of work that criminal barristers do, is that really part of your understanding about why there's that level of outrage, about why it is the system has got to that point? And I'd hope not. This is what the reality of our life is like. Case after case after case... We have not only cases in court, we have those we have to prepare for. We have thousands of emails coming through. We're dealing with a system now because the pressure on the legal aid solicitors is as great as ours. That We no longer get the luxury of things like instructions to counsel with a brief with instructions on the content. We quite often simply get emails with attachments, PDF combined, 250, 300 pages, without even a resume of the contents, saying, for your information. Solicitors too often now become post boxes rather than the instruction, instructing solicitors that they are qualified to be and would want to be. In addition to the emails, we have disputes to resolve, whether they be with opposing counsel or with our clients. We're expected to be mediator, moderator, agitator, advocate, negotiator, lister. We're expected to solve people's problems because when they look at us, that's what they think we are there to do, and indeed that is exactly what we do try to do. And in addition to all of that, we have the roll of the dice, which means, will you get on? Will your case be heard? Is there enough judges to hear you? Is there enough courts to hear you? Do we have the interpreters there? Do we have the assistants? Do we have triangle? And too often, because of the pressures imposed on our justice system, we have none of those things or one of those things missing is enough, and the case goes off, and so do we. And the consequences for the clients who built themselves up for that day is appalling to withhold, to observe, when you identify how long it's going to take to get them back into court again. And the consequences for us are significant because we have given up hours, scores of hours of time and dedication to try to prepare the case, and yet we have to explain why it can't continue. The stress is enormous. That's why... In 2015, when the Bar Council undertook a review about where our job satisfaction levels were, this was the product. Look at the results for worry and perfectionism. Look at the results for stress. Look at the sleep or the lack of it. Look at the work environment. Just look at those statistics. And one of the reasons I'm giving this talk because one of the questions asked of the barristers answering is, where are your role models? Where are the advocates for you? Where are the people saying what your life is like and taking the flack on your behalf? Because there is a stigma about saying, I can't cope. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this. Because the more senior you get in our profession, the more of a responsibility there is upon us to say no it is not good enough and it must change that survey was conducted in 2015 the bar council are undergoing a review to see whether our job satisfaction levels our levels of health mental well-being have increased between then and now i suspect the outcome will be little different what are the consequences of what i've just said to you which is twofold and just to summarize that's both the content of the work we do and the system in which we do it Well, the consequences are basically caractal damage. We are not immune from the work we do. We get secondary trauma. We get PSTD. We get burnouts. And when I'm using those words, what do I mean? I'm meaning that when we start to deal with the brutality of humanity, one person to another, an adult to a child, a child to a child, a system to an individual then we, by working with traumatised people, cannot become immune from the stress they have suffered because one of the skills, one of the attributes of us doing our job is empathy. Because without empathy, you don't ask the right questions and you become an automata. You become the person wearing a suit but behind a screen. That is not what we do. We have to engage. We have to gain trust. And with trust requires companionship and a dialogue. Burnout. Burnout is described as an emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, a reduced feeling of personal accomplishment which begins gradually and becomes progressively worse. Secondary trauma can occur following exposure to a single traumatic event. So, for example, a police officer who's obliged to watch images of a child being abused that may have a carol playing in the background might well, when they hear that carol again, immediately associate it with abuse they've seen because the image has ingrained itself so deeply upon his or her brain. Burnout and secondary trauma are issues we have to be aware of within our profession, and they have been ongoing for decades, but we've never said the words. We may experience complaints such as sleep difficulties, headaches, gut problems, immune systems, we become ill, we can't tired, self-harm or lack of care, we drink too much, smoke too much, isolation from family and colleagues because if we tell them what we're feeling we fear that we may traumatize them as much as we are traumatized we may hide how we're feeling because of a cloak of cynicism we may get irritable we may snap Sarah Vine someone who I have drawn some comfort from in terms of looking at her observations on the issue had this to say when she was interviewed um, back in 2018 and uh, as part of her role as a wellbeing director. There's a mental health crisis in the profession, and it is insidious. I spoke to someone the other day who said in the last fortnight she'd done two all-nighters, and basically that means, as you can read here, this person had wa- worked through the day and the night back on back 48 hours without a break. When we say that, and that's not an exception, I've done it, I know of colleagues that have done it, and I know colleagues that say they've done it on Twitter, none of us say that is stupid, stop. We simply go, oh dear, if we say anything at all. Or we laugh, not at them, but with them, because we recognise the insanity of what we're doing. At the bar, there is a fetishism of work and overwork, a culture of we can cope because we have to. And that must stop, because we cannot carry on normalising this abnormal behaviour, because we cannot cope with it. In our profession, in our division, that at least has been heard by our president, Andrew McFarlane, because I think it's significant in the first view he gave, called the President's View, in January 2019. He honestly confronted the challenges facing those of us in the family justice system brought upon years, decades of underfunding, and the fact that the work we do is trying to stretch so far to fit so many unrepresented clients in because legal aid has been removed from so many because there aren't enough judges to hear the cases, because there aren't enough courtrooms. And he acknowledged, as thus, it is neither necessary nor healthy for the courts and the professionals to undertake business as usual, because that is what we have done. For the time being, some corners may have to be cut. But what he said there is the most significant statement we've had from any senior serving judge, which is, When the pressure is sustained, it's remorseless and relentless, it's to risk the burnout of key and valued individuals in a system that's already sparely manned in terms of lawyers, court staff and judges. And we are hemorrhaging lawyers. We are losing very, very good, able barristers who would otherwise go on to do a lot of good for society. Criminal barristers who simply can't afford to remain in their profession anymore. Family barristers who come five years plus in particular who may have a child can't afford to stay on in the profession because the childcare costs, the ways of working, the extended hours simply are not viable anymore. And that's quite in addition to those that simply think there must be an easier way to make a living, who leave of their own accord. That is a brain drain that we just cannot afford to lose if we are to be a just society, and it's a loss to the profession because each of those members that leads may have gone on to be a very good judge, a very good senior barrister, a very good district judge, the very people who we want to make decisions for the best in our society. If we lose those, who else do we lose? And if we are losing people who cannot afford to stay, what does that mean in terms of the makeup of the bar? What does that mean in terms of someone like me, who despite coming from a single parent background and a comprehensive was able to be a legal aid barrister because it paid enough for me to be able to sustain my living in the early stages. What does that mean about all the really able BAME candidates that we want to embrace at the bar that can't be encouraged to come to the legal aid bar because how can we tell them they're going to earn enough from it? And what does that say about the gender balance of the bar from which we draw our judiciary if we don't address this problem? The time to do something is now because it cannot go on any longer. Burnout of the barristers, burnout of the system has gone far enough. Some examples about what we can do, and these came from Andrew McFarlane. So we can think seriously, can't we, about the earliest time of the day when the court can be reasonably expected to sit. I'm routinely at court for 9 o'clock for what's meant to be a 10 or 10.30 sitting, but that means I may leave home at 6 or 7 a.m., The judge may require us to be there earlier than the court opens because there's a handy cafe branch. Dictates as to when we should arrive. Don't take into account how long it takes us to get there or the work we've done in order to when we get to court to make a difference. We should have guidelines about the latest time of day when a court can reasonably be expected to sit, because if you go into court thinking that you can expect to leave around about 4:35 and you've got childcare, which means that you've organised picking up your child at six. And then the case is carrying on. What do you do about the child that needs collecting from your own home? How is that meant to materialise into an effective working life where your own families are put second to those you represent? What about the latest time in the evening and the earliest time in the morning when it's acceptable to send an email to another lawyer? I mean, God knows that will be an improvement. And I am saying that being someone who at 3am sends emails I'm saying that someone at 4am is leaning over the side of the bed trying to carry on tapping replies to emails because I'm trying not to wake my husband who is pretending to be asleep next to me. I'm the person that gets up at 5am because I've got so many thoughts buzzing around my head that it's got to the point where I can't do any more work on my iPad or my iPhone and I've got to go down to the papers to put those thoughts into motion. I am a really bad example. All I've learnt in the time I've been preparing this lecture, and I'd like to say it was longer than before that, but it wasn't, is to say that when I send an email, it comes with a clear um, addition to say, just because I'm sending this, it's because it works with my working hours. It doesn't expect a response from you. But we receive information by emails. We receive critical information by emails. We're often put on notice of a pending application by emails. Can we say to the judge... I'm sorry, I wasn't aware because I didn't turn my phone on at 9 o'clock. And the answer is no. Because while we're not responding to emails, our opposing counsel are, and they're making gains by exchanges that we are excluded from. So if we don't reply to emails, we run the risk of putting our client's case at risk. So we do engage at 5, 6, 7 a.m., 12, midnight, 1, 2, 3, because we have to. Otherwise, we fear the client's case may be damaged because we're not the one dictating the dialogue and commanding the flow of information. So let's return to Andrew McFarlane again. Um, He acknowledged that as family lawyers and judges, and this applies just as much to any other discipline at Legal Aid, particularly the criminal bar, the human rights bar, the immigration bar, as it does does to us, judges should take it as a given that we as practitioners will go the extra mile for the sake of the child and the parties and the system when it's needed, and we will continue to do so. But basically, we can't carry on doing that any longer. Working beyond the expected norm now and again is tolerable and justifiable and necessary, but 24-7, 52 weeks a year is not acceptable. So there we have Mr Justice McFarlane, and I'm going to leave this up on screen so you can get your timeline clear. So there we have Mr Justice McFarlane Our president of the family division saying clearly in his view from the president's office so it's not an after dinner club, it's not a private gathering, this is something coming from his office about what is or isn't reasonable. So why is it last week I read on Twitter from a Silk colleague that he had been involved in a four day public children's case at 4pm on day three, judge gives everyone a five minute break before expecting a parent to go in the box. Quite aside from the environment in which that was happening, hottest day of the year, no one able to breathe and function, just think what that means. If a silk is involved, that means a parent is accused of something so serious that a silk is involved. We are involved in the tiniest proportion of cases and only when no other degree of representation is acceptable. That means there's some serious stuff going on down there. It's on day three. That means the parent has been in court for days one, two, and three, trying to focus on the evidence, understanding the case against them. The first time they get to rebut it is when they go in the witness box. How fair is it to expect a parent to go into the witness box to give an account which the judge is going to decide whether they have or haven't harmed a child, whether they are are not a risk to the child they seek to resume? How fair is it on them to go into the witness box at that stage to give the most important evidence they can in their life? And then quite, aside from the impact on the person that you're there to represent, what about the barristers? 630 with children of their own to look after or to tend for, or those that have got caring responsibilities. So why is it that a family judge, despite the view of the most senior family judge in the land, thought this was acceptable? And the answer is because that's the culture, and it's not called out enough. This is why this lecture is important, because when we suffer by virtue of the demands placed upon us by the system, we're not the only ones to do so. And too often, our own families come second. And if that's something you have to tell the young coming into our profession, one wonders why they would want to do it. So that's the grim bit. (laughs) Now I'm going to move on to what we can do to try to change this work culture, because change is required. What can we do to spot the potential for anxiety? Well, the first thing I think you have to say is none of it comes with a Nina Nina sign with help branded on someone's forehead when they really are struggling. And quite often when we are struggling, we are likely to conceal it from those who might want to help because it's just not done. Like I say, there's a stigma as that saying you can't cope. We are very used to masking our emotions. If we couldn't mask our emotions, we couldn't act for some of the clients we're required to act for. So we are the ultimate chameleons. So don't think that if someone's struggling, they're going to come and tell you. You have to be alert to changes in behaviours. You have to see if there's that moment of reflection outside in the corridor where someone just looks dead on their feet. And if they're friends of yours and you've noticed they've gone silent on Twitter or they're no longer responding to your calls and you know they're in a heavy case, just ask how they're coping. What else you can do? You can think about the impact of your way of working may have upon a junior. So now when I'm dealing with a junior, I say, I am not a good role model to follow. You must not do what I do. My job is different to yours. The ultimate responsibility for what happens in the courtroom is mine. If there's a mistake, it's mine. If If there's credit to be taken, it's going to be shared. That burden I have is not one that you need to mask and mirror. If I send emails at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, it's because I'm working on the papers, and my way of working is if I don't put my thoughts down in writing, I feel that they're like fog. I'm going to lose them in an hour's time. All I'm doing when I send you emails, I now say, is I'm putting my thoughts down in motion so I can gather them together, but you do not have to reply. It's simply a way of communicating. I do that now. I haven't done that for long enough. If I'm talking to them about how to manage client behaviour... I talk about the roles and responsibilities that they have as opposed to that the solicitor has and make it very clear who does what when so that no one is trying to cover everyone's back doing everything at the same time. I am clear about what we expect clerks to do as opposed to what we expect solicitors to do and I try to be really clear with solicitors that I expect instructions on the evidence rather than the postal service. I can see a laugh from the audience there. We know how likely that is sometimes but it doesn't happen enough because we cut corners in order to get things done, but we can make changes. So what else can we do? What can we do for a colleague? Well, we can approach conversations from a position of kind consideration. We can treat our colleagues as though we would like to be treated when we know we are suffering, not someone to take advantage of someone who's forgotten something or appears to be grappling for a piece of paper or a word. We can assist But we need to remember we're not there as counsellors. We're not trained to be that. We are there to be the caring, listening ear that simply asks the question, are you okay?" And does so in a way where we give them permission to say, no, I am not, without thinking we're going to take advantage of that admission. All we have to be is alert and compassionate, assuming we have the mental energies to be alert and compassionate. But when it gets to the point that that's too much, Then we have to be aware that there are specialist agencies who can do what we cannot do as laypersons, and that's when we turn to the Bar Council. The Bar Council, after their seminal um, reviews conducted in 2015, took this hugely seriously. The CBA, the Criminal Bar Association, were pushing the dialogue well ahead of the other specialist bars, but now everyone is catching up. And they have a superb well-being site, which you must click onto to see What I found really instructive when I clicked onto it is the type of things which are included under this heading. And I put the heading there because the very fact it's said to be common shows that this is not exceptional in terms of the issues the Bar Council is now receiving details of and hearing about. I've talked about lack of sleep. I've talked about perfectionism, eating disorders, gambling, drug addiction. I haven't talked about panic, and that's a big one. That's why we stay up all night working, because the greatest fear that any of us have, certainly I have, is not having done enough work to be able to do the job in court the next day. And then that moment of panic, which feels like it's lasting for hours, when I realise there simply isn't enough time for me to do what I have to do in order to feel ready to deal with the consequences of the next day. Bullying, something I've spoken about in previous uh, lectures. Making professional errors as a result because you simply weren't equipped, you didn't know it was a new situation, or you've you've just made a mistake. All of those things come under common problems. Look at this data. If we didn't have a problem, why would it be we wouldn't have had 242,500 hits since it was launched and 75,500 in 12 months? What I would like you to take from that is two things. One, there is an issue we need to grapple with, but two, there is nothing to be ashamed of in saying you are struggling because God knows clearly by those figures you are not alone and there's a resource there to be used. What else can you do? You can use the assistance program. Too few of us know about this. Did you know? That the assistance program program has been set up by the council, which offers counselling 24/7, not just to us as barristers, but to barristers' clerks. You can ring it. That way, you'll get people to talk to you if you don't have the confidence to talk to a friend or a colleague, and they will talk to you in confidence. We have Law Care. I put it down there under SOS. I think it probably is the fourth emergency service. It's a mental health charity which is there to help all branches of the legal profession, however senior or junior you are, because we don't want to lose you. And they are there with the specialist skills to be able to assist. Well, there's a webpage on the Bar Council website, which basically contacts um, you with Law Care, MIND, Mental Health Foundation, Rethink, SANE, Samaritans, and also a facility, potentially, if you are in dire financial straits, to be given support through the Barristers Benevolent Association. In addition, there are these things. It's not just the Bar Council. It's not just us as barristers. It's not just the internet. The inns, our specialist associations, our chambers, all of these groups of people and individuals and institutions are now aware that we need to do more within our profession to help ourselves and to make sure we don't carry on hemorrhaging talent and skill from our pool. And it's why at the end of this lecture and in the handout you'll get, you will be given a sheaf of telephone numbers and emails to contact, because all the people who put themselves forward are there because they want to help and intend to help. You seriously are not alone. But no one can help you if you don't pick up the phone or click on the internet or speak to someone. So, final words. Don't do as I do, do as I say. And what do I mean when I say that? I'm standing in front of you giving a lecture that's quite difficult to deliver. I'm giving a lecture to you saying that I am a very, very role model for what I am promoting to you. I'm standing before you as someone who does say they work at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. I'm standing here in front of you as someone who's a mother to three children who should not know what they do about child death. I'm standing here in front of you as someone who doesn't sleep who doesn't eat well enough, who works too hard. And just if I take the last six months, for example, I finished a four-month trial in Manchester, a serious, insidious sex abuse case, allegedly, working alongside some of the most talented and able barristers I had the privilege to meet. But I didn't expect it to last four months. I took a flat and thought I'd be out after two. I thought I had have time to prep the case I was moving on to, which is a factitious induced illness case, which in old parlance used to be Munchausen's. In fact, the trial in Manchester finished on a Thursday, and I started my next trial with 30,000 pages on the Tuesday. That's not healthy. It's not healthy that in addition to do that, I was dealing with emails, responding to requests for help and guidance and assistance, or just someone to talk to from people that had been bullied or people that were telling me for the first time they have been sexually harassed, and I can't ignore those calls. And at the same time, I'd agreed, because I do too often, to write an article for Council magazine. I'd agree to write articles for Jordan's Family Law because I'm thinking, oh, lovely me. People love me. And because I am self-employed and I am immensely competitive, I want to be top of the food chain. I want to be the one that gets the best briefs. I want to be the one that gets the awards. I want to be the one that's in the legal 500. I want to be in grade one. I want to be bloody good at my job, and I am, but I'm only as good as I am because I work too many hours at the cost of a personal life. And so that's why a month ago, the Sunday before I delivered the Gresham Lecture on a child's right to life and death, alongside a colleague I didn't want to let down, Dr Imogen Gould, I woke up on the Sunday morning with more than the Monday morning dread because I simply couldn't see how I could do it all. The photocopier wouldn't work, the printer wouldn't work, and that was just enough and it tipped me over the edge. So I started crying. And I cried so loudly that my husband heard and he came down, and I could not stop crying. My children rang up. I took the telephone call because if I didn't answer, they'd be worried. I did not stop crying. What I didn't do, I didn't stop work. I worked throughout the day and throughout the night, and I went into court the next morning and I cross-examined eight medical professionals and one expert, and not a single person in that court would have known what it had cost to get up and do that the next morning. That is not healthy. That is not acceptable, and that is the message I'm delivering tonight to all of you listening, because that should not be the role model for why you get to be silk. We do have to look after one another more. And we do have to say, no, we can't do it any longer. So don't do as I do, please. Particularly don't do as I do, because it's not the way in which you can function in this business for as long as we've carried on doing. And do do as I say. And the reason that's important is because of this. The job we do is the most dynamic, passionate life-affirming, valuable, entertaining, energizing, inspirational job you can possibly do. It's a surge of energy that you get when you're cross-examining, when you know by virtue of the questions you're asking, you're making a difference to the outcome. You know by virtue of the conversations you have with your client that for the first time you're giving them faith in a system they had no knowledge of, and then when they did no trust of in again. The job we do is one of the most important any person in society can do if they want to make a difference at the front line. And it's really important we don't lose that message of encouragement and energy to those young people who are going to replenish our ranks in years to come. But when we are telling them, please come and do so, join our ranks, it can't be at the cost of what we know does not work. It has to be, because what we are trying to do is to make differences to those ways of working which are not healthy and which are not sustainable. And that is why senior members of the profession, along with their specialist agencies, have to be prepared that when something happens in court that is unacceptable, such as, for example, being required to stay on at court at 6.30, or being required to engage in email exchanges with medics that may or may not come to court, but whether the judge has a passing interest in what they might have to say, or when witnesses are shoved into a timetable that no one's prepared for, because that's the part that fills up the court day rather than anything else. That's when we have to say no. Because until we do start saying no, the court system will continue to rely on the fact that we will always bend over backwards to the point of breaking a back in order to make sure that the system rumbles on and the system can't, because the system itself is not functioning, and it's not functioning because for too long we've taken it for granted and not recognised the service it performs to those that need it. So, I promised you contacts, you will need those contacts, someone, if it's not you, will need those contacts, and this is the message I'd like you to remember. However much we think we are irreplaceable at work, we are not. But we are irreplaceable to our families. And if I hear again, speaking to another barrister, their tales of, for example, coming to court having had a miscarriage the night before, or of coming to court when a close family member has died, or of coming to court because... Despite suffering and experiencing an acute panic crisis, they still come to court rather than not. Or coming to court having discovered a lump in their breast that requires immediate admission, but they don't come because they've got an expert in the witness box. Then we know that is an unhealthy way of thinking about what we do, because if we were employed, we'd ring in sick. If we were employed, we'd say someone else can do it. If we were employed, we'd feel able to take the time off that's necessary. And we need to give ourselves permission to take that time off and to give ourselves the time to think and to repair and to change, because our well-being matters. So this has been a difficult lecture to give, and I hope it's the difficulty of expressing what I have has enabled those of you that have listened, whether you're online or you're going to read the detail, to realise that if you are experiencing any one or combination of these factors, it does not mean that you are weak. It does not mean that you are not valid. It does not mean that you are not worthy of doing the job you do. It probably means that you're working bloody hard and you really ought to give yourself a break and give yourself the time to say, I need help, because when you need help, there are people there, ready and willing, to assist you, but they can't come if you don't call. So please call. Thank you very much everyone for listening.